Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the award-winning Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, standing in for our host, Cathy Sheridan. First, our usual housekeeping. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. And if you like what we do, please go to iTunes, give us a review and tell all your friends about it. Later on in today's episode, our co-producer Jennifer Ryan talks to lifestyle blogger Lily Pebbles about her book on female friendships. It's called The F Word. But first, Women's Aid warned this week that Ireland's overstretched legal system and insufficient resources for survivors of domestic abuse are leaving women at risk of further harm even after they leave an abusive partner. In its latest annual report, the charity said that 28% of women who contacted them in 2017 continue to be abused by a former partner after separation and that leaving an abuser has become a game of snakes and ladders for women. Director of Women's Aid, Margaret Martin, came into the studio to speak to me about that annual report and about the many issues raised in it, including marital rape, sexual consent and victim blaming. Margaret, will you go through the figures this year? You do this every year. So so tell us the bad news because it seems to be always bad news. Well, I suppose the figures tend to be very much the same. So in 2017, we had 19,385 disclosures from women. And what women primarily want to talk to us about is about emotional abuse. So there was over 10,000 disclosures in terms of emotional abuse. And what we're talking about with emotional abuse is not just being called bad names and horrible names and being put down, but, you know, being threatened an awful lot, being locked out. It's all the things that are non-physical. They're the kind of controlling behaviours, the harassment that she gets maybe when she's going out with her friends. And that can come across very subtly sometimes. At, you know, where are you? When? T- what time are you going to be back? But it's a very controlling thing. Then we would we would always get a significant number. We got about three and a half thousand disclosures in terms of physical abuse. And some of that is very frightening. We would have a lot of women who would talk to us about being strangled, who find themselves unconscious, being smothered. Um, and that can happen so quickly. Um, it, it's, it's a really dangerous thing. And the more a woman is strangled, the weaker her voice box and all the protection around your neck is and the more susceptible she is then to strangulation and death. So that's always a worry when we hear about that. We hear about women being assaulted with and without weapons. We hear about women having broken bones, being pushed, being kicked and sometimes repeatedly and um, as well as as more minor pushes and shoved. And sometimes women will say to us things like, well, he doesn't he's, he, he doesn't hit me or he doesn't push me. But then when she starts to talk about what's happening to her, he's holding her against the wall. Maybe he's holding her by the throat or he's holding her by the shoulders or he's sitting on her in the bed. So there's an awful lot of intimidation and threat uh, um, behind all of that. 
We find women um, still talk to us very much about financial abuse. We heard about that all the way through the boom and the bust and it's still going on. And it's very significant when you think of women who are trying to leave an abusive relationship because um, all sorts of things happen, but a lot of it is about controlling behaviour. If they have a joint account, he's maybe spending all the money, running up debts, maybe gambling. Um, you know, that, that can be a huge worry. Then for the one that's least spoken about to us, but we know it, it, it is certainly something that happens and happens very significantly, is women talking to us about sexual abuse. So that we had about um, 607 disclosures of sexual abuse and within that there was 323 rapes. And what and would ta- many of these be in the marital context? Oh, yeah, they would be. You're talking about intimate relationships, so it's either boyfriend, a partner, um, or an ex. Uh, and how many husband. did you say marital rape? Sorry, how many? The six hundred and twenty-three. Because it's against the law, right? Okay. It, and it has been since. What? When did that? The nineteen nineties, right, which is relatively recently, in a yeah. way. But yeah. even though it's it's against the law and it's been in there at statute books, it, it, only four convictions. Is There's that right? There's only been four convictions. But you had three hundred people, sort of talking about we had 300 disclosures yeah now it may be the same woman sometimes because you've got to remember these are this isn't research this is is data that we collect from our, our calls but it's very significant and i think the thing is for an awful lot of women as well they will say things like well you know he says to me but i'm his wife if i'm married you know because a lot of people you've got to remember marital rape came in the 90s Women in their 60s and 70s and 80s are ringing us and they were married before that became legislation. I think for an awful lot of people, it has not really dawned on them that it's a crime. And even with all of the talk with the Ulster rape case, you know, somebody was saying to me, but if you're married to somebody, how could you rape them? So it's almost like this idea that, you know, you get consent. By being, when you go up into the altar and you do your vows, that's consent. Yeah, and certainly a lot of men behave like that in that they they feel that they have an entitlement to have sex anytime, any place in any way. And for an awful lot of women, a lot of that behaviour as well is very humiliating because they may be made to watch porn. They have very, I'm not going to talk about them, but they have very disgusting practices um, and sometimes very much... uh, I mean, I'm talking about these all separate, but they're not. You know, the experience of that is that there will be a lot of verbal abuse, a lot of physical abuse as well. And women find, you know, maybe who are in in their sleep and then they wake up and they find he's having sex with them and holding them down. And that the impact of all those things varies. But, you know, that is one thing that then makes very difficult for women to sleep because they feel that they're on edge all the time. How long have you been working in this area? Myself, I've been coming up to 15 years. Okay, which is a long time. And what were you doing before that? I was involved in a few different organisations. I worked for the National Women's Council on Policy and Education. Before that, I worked on a leadership course that was uh, cross-border. So in all of those, in those roles that you've done, like you've been looking at this kind of thing for for quite a long time, part of your adult life. It feels to me, because we have you in and you come and tell us these figures and it feels a lot of the time like we're just talking about the same thing. Yeah. Nothing's changing. Yeah. And I suppose all I'm just thinking is talking to you is, is this complacency that we seem to have about this issue where it happens to women so frequently in so many different destructive ways and it's just a fact of life, but there's no shock horror anymore. And I just wondered what you think about, is it because it's women that it's happening to? And Absolutely, yeah. And, and younger men. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about sexual abuse, 
I think what was interesting about the Savvy report was that the lifetime risk of, of rape and sexual assault for men drops once they get to kind of mid-teens and they become physically more able is my interpretation of that. But that means that that's still happening too, you know. So I think we're talking about people who are not seen as being a priority to children and, and women primarily in society. And I think the only thing that gives me heart and gives people who work in, in this area is that so many women are coming out to talk about it now and that their anger is coming out. Now, I've been involved with this, as you say, for a long time. I was in the Rape Crisis Centre in the 80s. I was on those marches. But, you know, at the same time, it has such a profound effect on people's lives that really we have to keep working to change it. And when you see, you know, when you hear from women who have been in abusive relationships and they're able to move on and they're safe, you know, it's 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 much more just an individual level, but it really makes the work worthwhile doing. But it is very frustrating to have to keep giving the same messages to government and to have this. I think government is incredibly resistant to change. You know, sometimes it's all drip, 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 a small change. Now, the domestic violence legislation that will be enacted is going to be good. It's going to be a much better than the previous legislation. But the reality is we've had domestic violence orders since the 70s. So that's the most simple order is a barring order. You know, if you're being abused, you call 99, the guards come out, uh, you can go down to the court, you can get an order and you get protection. The problem is with the systems that actually make the, the legislation a reality that effectively protect women. And we had our launch the other day and we had two women who spoke about the huge deficiencies in that. And one of the things we have in our report this year is we've gathered information for when women do talk about the police where they've had a good response. What has that been? And when they have a negative response. So two thirds of women roughly have had a positive response and that can make a huge difference to them feeling safe. It gives a message to the, their abusive partner. But where they're not getting a good response, it leaves them at huge risk. And it's it's small things a lot of the time. And the thing that I find bewildering, to be honest, is it's in the guard the policy and has been for a number of years that if you're called out, that if there's a barring order and if there's a breach of the barring order, it's there's a pro arrest policy. But on the ground, very, you know, very often that is not happening. So one of the women who was speaking the other day and people will have seen her speak, uh, talk on the primetime programme, she was was beaten and kicked into an inch of her life, basically. Um, she rang so many times because she had an order in place. She'd separated. You know, people say, well, why doesn't she just leave? She had left. She'd left for a significant amount of time. He was still coming to her house. She had CCTV, which is how the prosecution actually, you know, the, there was so much evidence there. But the Gardaí were not coming out every time that there was a 999 and, and they could easily have arrested him at that point in time. The the kind of abuse that she experienced. And that's that that's the big shift that has to change is there's a lot of good guards. And what we're saying is that it's like a game of snakes and ladders, a roll of the dice. You can get from the same station on the same night somebody who's really good. There's some excellent guards and they work very hard at protecting women. And there's some guards who minimise it and they'll come out and say, ah, he's had a few drinks, just let him sleep it off. He'll be fine in the morning. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to be putting him into prison now. You don't want to be making him a criminal. He's the father of your children. So you can get very negative responses and you can get very... And I think for a lot of the guards, the way look, they look at it, the, the hierarchy of crime is 
that there's there's drug crime, there was all the stuff cross-border and terrorism and terrorism is coming back onto the agenda. And something that is a high-volume crime but is not a threat to the wider population is is just seen as something that's very, you know, it's just part of some sort of normal practice and is minimised and you're not getting really good but responses. But can I go back to that? And I don't want to get really depressed and I know that you have to take heart in various things that happen, but when is the culture going to change that this idea that because it's happening to women, and I do think that's what it yeah. must be, yeah. because it's happening to women and girls, um, or just say young women, older women, whatever, that it's just not a high priority, that it's not on the same level as some other more important crimes. What what can we do to change that? Well, I think people are working hard to do that. I think the big one of the biggest things, I think, is the resistance of the Department of Education to have done any effective kind of um, relationship work in schools. Now, people say, OK, you should do it at home. But that, again, leaves it to chance on how. And for an awful lot of people, you could hear that with the Ulster trial. You know, parents were floundering and finding it very difficult. How do you have a conversation? So, you, you know, there's really good practice up in Northern Ireland in terms of safeguarding children in schools, in terms of talking about what's healthy relationships. You know, so if you give people those tools early on and you can be much more assertive, that could have a profound effect on young women in thinking, OK, what is consent? That means I have to agree. That means I have to be happy to do this. Mm. Um, rather than growing up with this thing where most uh, uh, young people are seeing an awful lot of stuff about pornography, which is really damaging in terms of informing you know, people who are coming and are interested in sex and want to find out, and we would wish them to be. Um, and what they need is positive experiences rather than this very misogynistic line, which is that women really are going to say no, that they f- then they feel they have to say no, but they really are saying yes. So instead of, of working on the basis that you can actually, you can, you can put age-appropriate sex education, consent education, relationship education mm-hmm. in from very young, very young children understand they are like somebody touching them sometimes and they would not like other people touching them or the way they touch them. We all have that instinct in us, which is, is really important. And sometimes that, that gets blurred over time. But if you work around that from an early age, you can make a very strong um, ethos there and, and culture there for young people to talk about it. So what are the important things from your point of view in terms of what you, you're trying to focus on now and trying to raise awareness about now? Well, I think the biggest thing that we're still working on is really the whole thing about victim blaming and about this, you know, we 28% of the women we work with had left their partner. So what we're saying is, you know, this message of why doesn't she just leave? Like women are told this, There's, this is said to their faces when they're in very abusive relationships. And what we need to be saying is, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Is there something I can do? Um, and change in that. And very often somebody believing them like that's what an awful lot of women say to us is it's so it means so much to be able to ring and be listened to and be treated with respect and help and somebody just help understand what's actually happening to them whereas we can we hear so much of this we know what the tactics are are that are being used a classic one is that whole thing of isolation you know that you see it build up in a relationship eroding contact with your friends eroding your your support base eroding your economic independence women being discouraged to work we hear of women being locked in a room and not allowed to go for an interview for a job like the tactics are extraordinary you know in terms of what's normal um, but 
the shame that's attached to domestic violence makes it really difficult for women to be able to go along to an employer next day and say, I really want this job, but I was locked. And they, and what is an employer going to do? You know, so they're, they're trapped in a lot of ways. So I think that what gives me heart and I think what's important is more women talking about their experience, more women feeling confident enough to do it face to face. And there are safety issues that we need to talk about. But what was encouraging at this time was that the minister was there. They were able to put their case directly to the minister and he apologised. He said he was shocked that he would take the message back. And that's what we have to see is we have to see the government say we've got this wrong and we have to do more. And these are the things we have to do. Mm. Well, maybe that is changing and maybe that it isn't perhaps as acceptable as it maybe was in the past or that normalising and making it this is just something that happens it's not a high priority maybe yeah. you're chipping away at that and that yeah, culture yeah. it's a culture change isn't yeah. it yeah. Um, yeah I mean we could talk about it all day and it is very depressing but at the same time people organisations like yourselves have to keep working at it because otherwise can you imagine if you didn't have women's aid and you didn't have all these places yeah. what the situation would be yeah. and that's I think that's the thing that's really important is that you know for when you talk to older women you know women as I said in their 60s and 70s and they'd say I never realised that there was something there was a service like this there and I never realised you could do all of these things with me and, and support me and it's because I think that's the other thing that gives me encouragement is young people now think oh, I, you know, it's there somewhere. I just have to find it. Um, so there's an expectation that, that that's there. Whereas for women, in, you know, who married and, and settled down or are in relationships, there was an assumption that you had to put up with it because you were married. Now, if you have to put up with it, that leaves that whole area of sexual abuse, etc. way open, you know, or that it's your fault that you didn't have dinner on time, that you didn't, you know. So so I think there's there's a generational shift and I think I would hope that that's certainly for younger women. And that's why we have a campaign too into you to target younger women, mm -hmm. to look at what's not a healthy relationship here mm -hmm. and what maybe do you need to think about and talk to somebody about and make some decisions about. And I think um, you mentioned earlier the growing rage among women is also a very positive, healthy thing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And so I think that's the thing, you know, and it, it, you know, when the two women were speaking the other day, they said they found it really healing as well. And I think the silencing of women has been a very effective tool in stopping progress. So that when you when you lift that and and create spaces and safe spaces for women to talk, mm -hmm. you know, like we have here, that's a really powerful tool. And the unfortunate thing is the progress is way slower than we want because we all know we've such a distance to go. But it is heading in the right direction. And I think that's what we have to hang on to for hope. OK, well, nice, hopeful note to end in there. Thank you very much, uh, Margaret Martin. And uh, well done on all you do. And thank you for everything you do as well. That was Margaret Martin there, Director of Women's Aid. Now, our next guest, Lily Pebbles, has been making a living for herself through blogging for the past eight years. And she's worked collaboratively with loads of big brands, including Estee Lauder, Burberry and Bobby Brown. She's been featured in the Sunday Times Style magazine, Glamour and In Style, and her podcast series, At Home With, went to number one three hours after being uploaded onto iTunes. Recently, Lily's first book, The F Word, was published, and in it she sets out to explore and celebrate the essence of female friendship at different life stages and in its many wild and wonderful forms. She spoke to our co-producer, Jennifer Ryan. So, uh, Lily Pebbles, you are an influencer and a content creator, but now you've turned into an author too, and I'm sure many 
many of our listeners will be familiar with your vlogs and all that kind of stuff. But for those who maybe aren't, can you explain a little bit first about what it is that you do? Sure. Well, I started my blog um, eight years ago now at university. It was just kind of a bit of a side project. And a few years in, I actually took it full time. So it's been my full time job for about maybe six or seven years now. And it started mainly as beauty, but over time it's become more lifestyle and just anything I'm really interested in at the time. So I have my YouTube channel, my blog and Instagram, Twitter, all of that. And I have this amazing relationship with my viewers that kind of follow my content and have grown with me over time, which is really nice. And your book is called The F Word, but it's not the rude one. It's about female friendships. So can you tell me why did you decide to write a book about that? Sure. Well, it's a topic that's always been something I'm incredibly passionate about. My female friends mean the world to me, and I'm very lucky to have had friends since a really young age. Um, And it's a theme that's always kind of been underlying in my content. My viewers have always noticed my friends popping up in my videos and noticed the relationships I have with them. But I never really found the right platform to talk about female friendship um, and really explore it further. And so I thought a book was the best place to do that. And I really just set out because to do this because I wanted people to think more about their female friendships and to really prioritize them. I feel like we talk a lot about romantic relationships and love, but never really the love between women as friends. And that's something that's just so massively important to me. I'm not sure if you've read Dolly Alderton's book, Everything I Know About Love. We spoke to her recently on the podcast here, and it's quite a similar um, idea that she has with her own book. And she calls her female friendships her most enduring love stories. Is that the same for you? Definitely. I mean, they're just such a massive priority to me. In the book, I kind of mentioned that when I get engaged, when I got engaged a couple of years ago, the first thing I did was write love letters to all my friends. That was my natural instinct. They're just the ones who are always there for me. Um, And you have to really invest time in the friendships as well. They're not easy, but it's so worth it. And you've had friendships from your early childhood. And I find that quite amazing that they've, they've carried through into adulthood, because I know for most people, a lot of friendships tend to fizzle out for whatever reason it is when we get older. So how is it that you've managed to hang on to them? I know you just said there about investing time in friendships is very important. But as people grow up, people grow and they change. And I think their friendships probably do as well. Yeah, I agree. And I probably had an opposite experience to most people because I really struggled to make friends in secondary school and university where I think most people make friends. And that's probably because I had those strong friendships from primary school that kind of stopped me. Um, But I agree when your life starts moving at a different pace. And I talk a lot about that in the book, how you kind of keep on to those friendships. I think luckily for my friendship group, because we had such strong roots together, because we had a lot of our first experiences together, that will always bond us. So that no matter what happens, we'll always have that connection. But I think it's just about investing time and showing an interest. And if if a friend is having a baby and you haven't yet, you know, don't shut them out. Show an interest in them and just be being a really supportive, thoughtful friend is always really important. And the book, as I mentioned, is called The F Word. And I just want to touch on a few things that are in it because I was laughing out loud at some of them. Uh, some of your diary entries are oh, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like? putting yourself out there, looking back at your teenage diaries and then actually, you know, saying, "Okay, fine, I'm going to put them in the book. Yeah, it's something I was so embarrassed about for so many years. I didn't show anyone. I mean, there's still some pages I definitely wouldn't, but I love reading it to my friends. It's so funny. And it kind of inspired the book because some of the things I wrote about, you know, my friends, one day they'll realize being a good friend is 
more important, like as quite deep as a child, I think. Um, so I just thought it would be great to put it in there because it's a bit of a full circle, really. I used to love just sitting, writing a diary and talking about my friends. So it was a bit, it was a bit scary. I mean, the spelling mistakes in those diary entries are just terrible. But Shocking. It was very funny. <laughs> and uh, the Spice Girls feature in it. How important an influence were they on you and your friends when you were growing up? Yeah, massively. I read an article yesterday, actually, about how you know, were the Spice Girls the right type of feminists? But I mean, obviously, so much has changed since then. But at the time, I think it was so important just having a girl group like that so massive talking about friend, friends and friendship. It was just so different to anything else. And it definitely inspired me and my friends at school. Um, we all used to like pick a Spice Girl to be and it just gave us the confidence to really like focus on our friendship. And you talk about the different types of friendships that you have with people in your life and something like, you know, the holiday friend, the single friend, the sensitive friend. Tell me about some of the friends that are in your group and the categories that they fall under. Yeah. So throughout the book, I I have these little profiles. So they're kind of like stereotypes of friends. Obviously, I don't think everyone would suit one. I think you can be a mix. I'm probably the realist friend um, who just kind of says it how it is and is very honest Um, But I'm also the older sister friend. And I also have an older sister friend who's the friend that's kind of there to give you really solid advice and be really selfless and kind of think of you first. But I think it's quite important to have a mix. I think it's all about having that friend edit um, and having the different friends you go to for different things. I think everyone's got a sensitive friend where they have to act a little bit different around that person. They always have to extend the invite to them just in case, even if they know they're busy so they don't get offended. Um, But I do think it's nice to have a range of different friends who you go to for different things. Um, I talk about the BFF, which was quite controversial because some people are so passionate about having just one best friend and others just think it's just not how it works anymore. You need a group Mm. of friends for all different things. And what about melding different groups of friends? Because that can always be a weird one. You especially when you you've left school and you now start a career or whatever you might be in different workplace and then you have those friendships from your childhood friendships you met at college and then you start to meet people from work and your time becomes more and more precious because you may be working a nine-to-five job and you might be busy at weekends so it gets handier to try and mix your friendships but they don't always work so well. Yeah, definitely. I, I love mixing my friends. Like on my hen party, I had 10 girls and they all knew each other pretty much apart from a couple. And that is so nice to me. Um, and I think it's something I've always been quite good at, but it is really tricky um, and it doesn't always work. You have to think about which personalities are going to blend well together. And if they don't, then don't force it. You know, see those friends separately. That's OK. And I also think if you do try and mix friends, you have to allow them to be their own friends independently. You can't introduce people and then expect them to only see each other with you there. You can't kind of own your friends that way. We've talked about toxic friendship on this podcast before and how it is that you recognise when you're in one. So what are the warning signs for you and have you ever had to extricate yourself from a toxic friendship? Yeah, I've had, I haven't had that many terrible experiences, which is why I was a bit nervous about writing that part of the book. But it's actually a section I really enjoyed because I interviewed so many other women and listen to their experiences as well. But for me, I've definitely found more in my adult life that I've met people and I I thought that we were best friends and we were getting on so well. And then I realized that they were just using me to kind of get to the next step and they'd bombard me with questions 
and then kind of never really spoke to me unless they needed something or they wanted to find something out and just moved on to the next person. And you just have to move on from that and not let people kind of bring you down. You mentioned there that you uh, you interviewed other women for your book. So uh, did you speak to your friends about what was going to be in the book before it was published? And what's their reaction been like? Yeah, I knew that most of the bits where I talk about my friends would be all positive, but true. And I did want to I did have to check with them. Like, are you OK with me to share the story? And they're all really supportive and lovely. So they were absolutely fine with it. My friend SJ was slightly paranoid about the diary entry about her kissing the boy that I fancied because she thought everyone would hate her. But apart from that, they're all really supportive. That's good. <laughs> so what, what's next for you? You're continuing on with all of the work you've been doing before. So what can we expect to see from you next? Yeah, well, my friend Anna and I have a podcast called At Home With where we go into, well, last season we did all women. We're thinking this season we might mix it up a bit, but we go into people's homes who inspire us and we chat to them about their home and what they're up to. So we're going to be doing season two of that coming soon. And then I don't know, I've got lots of personal stuff going on. I'm doing up a house, which is very exciting, but who knows? I never know what the kind of future holds. It's always very exciting, but I'm looking forward to getting back into kind of making content on my YouTube channel and Instagram. It's kind of what I love doing the most, really. Are you the kind of person who just takes uh, opportunities as they arise? Yeah, definitely. Um, And it's always in this sort of industry, everything's always really last minute and exciting. So you never really know what's kind of coming next. And that's kind of what I like about it. Lily Pebbles, it's been lovely speaking to you on the Women's Podcast and uh, best of luck with the book. I hope it sells like hotcakes and I'm sure we'll be seeing and hearing from you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. That was blogger turned author Lily Pebble speaking to Jennifer Ryan there and a reminder that her book is called The F Word, A Personal Exploration of Modern Female Friendship. And that's it for today. Thank you to our guests, Margaret Martin and Lily Pebbles. Today's podcast was produced by myself, Roshi Ningle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 